please stand and join us as we sing together.
Father, we've come today to sing of your greatness, to worship you, to open our lives to you together. We know that you are here, and we ask that you will work in us as you desire and make this a time that pleases you and helps us to become more like Christ. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Take a moment to share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship before you're seated. joy to come together and worship and we are glad that you are here and have joined your voice and heart and mind in uh, together as we worship. As always, there are things going on in the life of our church outside of what happens here. Highlight, I want to highlight just a few things in your bulletin tonight. Our small groups uh, continue meeting. Koinonia worship time is at the chapel at 7 o'clock. Wednesday evening, all of our ministries are on regular schedule. Just note, uh, for the boys club, boys and girls clubs on Wednesday night, there's some special activities, and you'll see that in the bulletin. Next Sunday morning, worship at 820, 940, and 11. And next Sunday evening, uh, Jared Anderson will be leading Koinonia worship time. Uh, Jared is the uh, composer of Hear Us From Heaven that we have used as theme song for our prayer vigils a couple of times. So you want to be a part of that. There are a couple of inserts in your bulletin, one about 30-hour famine that the youth group is doing, and we want to encourage you to, to participate in that. And also, if you're going to be here the months of May through September, any of that time, you have a great opportunity to work with our little ones in the nursery, and it's a wonderful way to serve the body of Christ together. So if, you can, uh, if you're interested, you can help with that. There's a form there. You can fill that out, drop in the offering plate or in the box in the back as you leave today. Always things that we're praying about, uh, people connected to us, situations around the world, and uh, we will do so again today. We're pleased to welcome the Reverend Dr. Joey Jennings to our worship services today. Dr. Jennings is the district superintendent of the Wesleyan Churches in western New York, and we've asked him to come to share with us a bit about what God has put on his heart. Thank you, Pastor Wes, and it's good to be here at Houghton Wesleyan Church, and 
Every time I come here, I just uh, feel at home. Uh, in many ways, I am. I've been, been a part of this church for many years. I want to read a scripture from Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 6. It reflects in some ways as Paul was writing to one of the churches he loved dearly. My sentiment towards Houghton Wesleyan Church, Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of, the, of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is thankful for this church and the partnership that the church has had. And he talks about the past, the present, and the future. And as we, uh, as I wanted to share this morning, let me share about the past. As we, as we celebrate the district, the district of the Western New York District, the Western Church, celebrates 150 years of existence. We started in 1861. And so this church has been a part of that history for most, if, most of that time, if not all. I'm not sure if the Houghton Church was one of the original churches in the, in the Lockport Conference. But it also was a part of the starting of the college as several churches in this area felt the need to, to start a training college for Sunday school teachers and pastors in the area. It is also a part of my history. I can think this year is, is 30 years ago that I came as an 18-year-old student to Houghton College and uh, it's just so much a part of the, the history of that the partnership that, that this church has had with the college, with the other churches, with the community has been, been uplifting. As, as I share uh, some of what's going on in other, other churches around our district, many of that is related to students that have come through the college, maybe through this church. Uh, Christopher Baldwin is a Houghton graduate, and he's pastoring the Vine Wesleyan Church in Depew, Lancaster just outside of Buffalo. There's a church plant started about six years ago and have, have, have had about 130 to 150 people. This year, they've moved into their own building for the first time, actually bought a Catholic building that was selling their, their structure. And um, they've, they've jumped to where most Sundays this spring, they've been over 200 and uh, just worshiping and enjoying the, 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 the new building and, and the blessings there. Another church is... Uh, North Collins Wesleyan Church, a small, very rural uh, community. Uh, Steve Collins, I mean, Steve, um, not Collins, uh, Steve Dunmire has pastored at North Collins for about seven years and grown this church to where over the last three or four years it's been our fastest growing church, just having a tremendous ministry to reaching the people in that, in that community. And Steve's also a, a Houghton graduate. We share uh, uh, one other church, uh, the the Home City Wesleyan Church is a church plant. One of the things that the Wesleyan, that the district can do is help is combine the work of different churches throughout our district to plant churches. And Home City is one that we're starting in the city of Buffalo. Uh, David Shemenda is originally from Zambia, but has uh, been in the United States for about 20 years and felt the Lord calling him to plant a church in Buffalo. And they've been working to develop a core group for the last, almost the last year, nine months to a year. And in two weeks, they'll have their first Sunday morning worship service for the core group. And uh, so we ask that you pray for them. Some good things are happening there. As a district, I said, we're, we're celebrating 150th year. Throughout this year, we've had several events. We had a, a worship rally as we celebrated the anniversary back in, in the summer, last summer with Dr. Bud Bentz. We had the 40 Days of United Prayer, which your church, each of our churches were part of. And this coming Friday, we have a comedy concert. One of the ideas to 
to look with joy and laughter upon the future, what God has in store for us. And so Tim Hawkins is coming to uh, Eastern Hills Wesleyan Church in Buffalo uh, this coming Friday. And uh, so we're encouraging any that can come to, to attend that as, as well. It is a fundraiser for our mission work in Haiti. We've uh, sent several teams. I know this church has been instrumental in John Cole and sending those, those work teams to Haiti. And uh, it looks like with the ticket sales we have, this concert alone will be able to raise about $20,000 for the work of building churches in Haiti. Um, as we look to the future, I believe God has good things in store for this church and for the churches in western New York. But my, my calling for each of the churches is to, to encourage us, to exhort us to rely not upon our own strength, but upon God's. That we need to, to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. Without that spirit, we are, are much, like without, much like any other organization in our, in our community and, and really powerless to make a difference. I was reading, and I'll close with this quote. It's a quote from Francis Chan's book, The Forgotten God, in which he, he says, In many ways, we have forgotten the, the role of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. He says, The world is not moved by love or actions that are of human creation. And the church is not empowered to live differently from any other gathering of people without the Holy Spirit. But when believers live in the power of the Spirit, the evidence in their lives is supernatural. The church cannot help but be different. And the world cannot help but notice. Paul said to the Philippians that, that we are called and that we, God will the, complete the work that was begun in us. Let us continue to rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish this work. Thank you for letting me come and share with you and know that you are fondly in my prayers. God bless. Thank you. We want to continue to pray for Joey and his leadership, the churches of our district, and particularly the Home City Church, as they will uh, begin their launch in the next couple of weeks and ask for God's grace and blessing as they minister to those in their community. We have the opportunity to give back to God from all the ways in which he's blessed us. The ushers are going to come and assist us. up from the 
the opportunity to offer our prayers to God together. As we do, if you would like to kneel at the altar as your place of prayer, I invite you to join me. Most gracious Father, we thank you that Christ is risen. It changes everything. We pray that you will give us a new vision of the risen Christ 
in his power and grace and mercy and truth and love. Through Christ, work in this world. We pray for the world that needs your hand of peace. We pray for the world that is crying out for justice, for righteousness, for compassion. We pray for the world that is yearning for leaders who will care more about people than about personal gain. Father, we pray that you'll begin in this nation and continue to the nations around the world of using our leaders for your purposes. We pray for your church that we will be a presence wherever we are in this world of your spirit and of your purposes, of your grace. Father, we pray for the church in Western New York, and we're particularly today thinking about the Wesleyan churches. Give to Joey wisdom as he leads. Open his eyes to your vision and your plans and dreams, and give him courage, patience, discernment to lead through your spirit. We pray for the home city church as they're preparing to to launch in a couple of weeks. And we ask that this will be a, a beacon of light in the midst of darkness and that folks will be attracted to the light because they see you there. And we pray that you would do great things. Father, our burdens and needs ebb and flow. We come today asking for your healing in our lives and for your comfort in our grief and, and for your patience with our struggles. We pray for wisdom and discernment about decisions for the future. And as the semester is nearing its conclusion to college, we pray for, uh, that, that students would finish well. We pray for faculty and staff as they cont- finish out the semester. And we pray especially for seniors as they're thinking about next steps. Give them your wisdom to walk in your way and give them renewed trust that you go before them. Father, thank you for hearing our prayers today. We know that you do. We offer our prayers in the name of our crucified Savior, our risen Lord, and our coming King. Amen. A scripture reading this morning comes from the book of 2 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. 2 Peter 1, 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and and of Jesus our Lord. 
His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. Through these, He has given us His very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, He is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall. And you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Please stand and join us as we sing. My soul finds rest in God alone, my rock and my salvation, a fortress strong against my foes, and I will not be shaken. Though lips may bless and hearts may curse, and lives like arrows pierce me, I'll fix my heart on righteousness, I'll look to Him who hears me. my soul in God alone amid the world's temptations when evil seeks to take a hold I'll cling to my salvation though riches come and riches go don't set your heart upon them the fields of hope in which I sow are harvested in
for your greatness, your power, for being our redeemer. As we continue in worship, open our minds and our hearts to your word. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. This week, someone sent me a a little note about a conversation they had with their three-year-old daughter. It was on Monday, and the little girl said to her dad, is it still Easter? And he said to her, no, honey, that was yesterday. It's over. And she said to him, well, is Jesus still alive? You know, I read that, I thought... I think a lot of Christians live with that mindset. That Easter is this one day of the year when we think about the resurrection and then we move on to something else. We see see Easter Day as the end of a season when actually the church fathers said, no, 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 it's the beginning of a new season. And one way it it is the conclusion of Lent. But more than that, it is a catalyst to the next 50 days as we are reminded day in and day out that we are resurrection people. And that our faith is grounded and rooted in the resurrected Christ. And in fact, the the fathers felt so strongly about the resurrection and the centrality of the resurrection that they said every single Sunday, no matter what season of the year, every single Sunday is a little Easter. It's a mini Easter that we celebrate every time we come together on the day our Lord was raised. But I think we miss that. And we get so enamored with with being willing to settle for mediocrity, being willing to to just have a, a, a small, limited relationship with Christ, we miss all that God has for us. This is something that I think Peter is trying to help us understand as he joins the writers of the rest of the New Testament in in describing what it looks like to be resurrection people. And as he begins this letter, he, he talks about the fact that we actually can be connected to the divine nature. It's not that we're going to be gods but that we have the power and we have the, the gift of God to so fill our lives that, as he says, we can, we can withstand the corruption of evil that has permeated our world. And we can live victoriously. And at the end of this section, he says that we will not stumble, but we will receive our welcome into the heavenly kingdom. And when he says you're not going to stumble, he doesn't mean that, that we're never going to sin. But he means that we, don't, we can get to the place where we're not going to turn our backs on God. We're not going to fall away from Christ and, and reject Christ. But he is going to lead us and guide us as we get to the end of our days. And we enter into the eternal kingdom. And we're into the welcoming, opening, open arms of our Savior. Now that's an important word for us as it was for the people to whom Peter originally writes this letter. We don't know exactly who it is that Peter writes this to. It might be the same group of people he wrote, writes the first letter. But we know that it's, a peop, it's people who are dear to him. And we, as you read through the letter, you get a sense that Peter realizes his life is about to come to an end. He is only a short time away from his execution for being a follower of Christ. 
And he has one more thing he wants to say to these Christians he dearly loves. He's concerned about the pressure of the world that's squeezing them and causing them to to reject Christ and, and to live without the courage of Christ in them. But he's also concerned about the inner heresy that is springing up in the church. And we don't know exactly what that heresy is, but it seems to be that it's the first inklings of what later becomes known as Gnosticism. It comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge or to know. And there are many facets to this this heresy of Gnosticism, but one of them is that the only people who can really know God and the only people who can fully experience the the power and, and the blessing of God in their lives are the people who have the secret. They have, they have cracked the mystery. They've cracked the secret. And they have been enlightened. And there are very few people that are enlightened like they are. And these false teachers come into the church and they say, we're enlightened. It, it's like if you joined a club and they said to you, the only way you can get in is to give us the password when you come to the door. And so you go to the door. And if you don't know the password, you can't get in. And these false prophets are saying... We're the only ones that know the password. We're the only ones that have this kind of elite relationship with God. And we'll try to help the rest of you, but good luck. And Peter's writing to them saying, that's not true. God has greater plans, greater designs for you than just mediocrity. Just good luck. He talks in verse 3 about our calling. And later on he uses the word calling, the words calling and election. And the minute those words come up in theological circles, you start dividing people. You, know, you start dividing people about how you view the concepts of, theological concepts of predestination, God's sovereignty, human will. And I don't really think that's a part of what Paul's discussion is about. And, and I don't think that, that that's the focus. And there are varying opinions about this, and there are people who are a whole lot smarter than I am who have opinions that, prob- that differ from my opinion. But I think that Peter's simply trying to tell them, God has put his finger on your life. God has plans for you that are far greater than you can imagine. He wants you in his kingdom. And I think when God talks about calling and election, I don't think he's limiting people. I think he's saying, that's my dream, that's my plan for the whole world. I want everyone in the fold. I want everyone to know what I created them to be and to experience that. And the reality is not everyone is going to respond positively to that. But those who do enter into a relationship and experience with God that is amazing. And Peter says, if you've entered into that relationship, God has amazing plans for you. He has promises for you that are almost hard to fathom. But God also has expectations for you. See, it all begins with grace. And and it's so important to make sure we understand that. Anything that we have in our lives that's good is because God gave us grace. Any decision we might make to respond to God positively is because God's grace is at work in us. But at some point, we have a responsibility about how we're going to respond to that grace. And not just initially, but for all of our life. 
And so he says in verse 10, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Another translation says, confirm your calling. Make every effort to confirm your calling. Now, when I think about make every effort, I'm thinking about people who are passionate, people who invest their time, their resources, their energy, people who will not stop until they have done what they want to do. It is a person who says, I'm all in with this. It's the kind of, it's the kind of doctor we hope to get if we're struggling with an illness. You know, if a doctor comes, if we come along and nobody can, and doctor doesn't know what's wrong with us, we don't want a doctor that says, well, you know what, I can't figure this one out, so just go home and deal with it. No, we want a doctor that says, I don't know yet, but we're going to get to the bottom of it. And we will run every test I can, I can think of, and I'll send you to every specialist I know and those I don't know. And we will do everything in our power, treatments and medications and everything we can think of to try to get to the bottom of this. That's the kind of doctor we want. We want a doctor that makes every effort they possibly can to help us. And when you think about making every effort, investing yourself, being passionate about things, that's the only way we get to the end that we want to get to. If we want to lose weight, you got to do something about it. If you want to get in better shape, you got to do something about it. You got to go to the gym, you got to lift the weights, you got to feel the pain in your arms and legs as you do that. If you want to learn a foreign language, you, you got to invest yourself in it. You can't expect to learn French by once every few weeks picking up a book and for 30 minutes thinking, well, I'll read through this a little bit. Now, it's investing all of ourselves in it. If you want to learn to play the saxophone, you've got to practice and practice and practice. And involved in that is a certain element of denial and sacrifice that if I want to accomplish this task, if I want to be good at this, then that means I'm doing this and not that. And that's hard for us. And it comes down, the only reason we make those decisions is because what we're hoping to accomplish is important to us. If it's really not that important to you to learn French, you're not going to give yourself to do it. If it's really not that important to you to get A's, you're not going to mess with it. It's about passion. It's about what's important to us, about what we love. I was not raised with weapons in my home. You know, I, I have, for a long time, I thought, I don't think, I know of anyone in my family, even a little bit of extended family, that owns a weapon. I do have a cousin who owns one of the largest buck knife collections in all of the Midwest and Eastern seaboard. So I'm guessing he might have some guns. But I don't know that. But probably. Figure if he's got all those knives, and I don't even know how many he has, probably hundreds, thousands of them. He's probably got a few guns as well. So, you know, this is the environment in which I was raised. Not familiar with weapons at all. After seminary, we, the first church we served was in the southwestern part of Wisconsin. It may, the rural nature of that makes Houghton look like a metropolis. I mean, you had to drive 12 miles to buy a can of pop. Nothing was around. 
And this is, there's two things about that area of Wisconsin that you can almost always guarantee. One is that everyone in some way or another is connected to the dairy industry. Either you milk cows or you drive the milk truck or you work at Wisconsin dairies in town. Or you're retired from one of those three jobs. And the second thing is you go deer hunting. Deer hunting season in Wisconsin is only nine days long. It starts a Saturday before Thanksgiving. It ends a Sunday after Thanksgiving. And it is intense. Really intense. So they got this big group of guys at our church saying, we want you to go hunting with us. Like, seriously? You know, I tried to tell them my background. That's okay. We, we want you to go. It, you'll, you'll do fine. We'll help you. Okay, it's your life. So, you know. So, <laughs> so uh, I figure this end of the gun was safe. It's that end of the gun you got to worry about. So that we get there on Saturday morning early. They put me in this spot. They say, you know, there's all kinds of deer that come by this place. And, and I'm standing there. It's a little shack that I go in and out of. And I'm standing there. And during the next four or five hours as I was there in the Wisconsin winter, I, I saw dozens of deer. Probably 30, 40 deer. And I shot at all of them. <laughs> I didn't hit anything. I'm not sure I hit a tree. You know, they're saying, so they have anthers? I don't know. I just looked at a deer. I shot at it. And I realized after that, that if you want to be a deer hunter, you got to know how to shoot a gun. And if you want to know how to shoot a gun, you probably need to own your own weapon and you need to practice a lot. And I came to the conclusion that I don't really like deer hunting that much. And I really wasn't, I didn't want to invest myself in that. And I suspect that there are a lot of us who subconsciously see our relationship with Christ that way. That, you know, it's something we dabble in. It's something we may like a little bit. But to really make an all-out effort, for it to become a passion for us and a driving desire in our lives, that we are giving ourselves to it and we're sacrificing and we're, we're developing our relationship with Christ by prayer and the reading of the scriptures and coming together in worship and all the spiritual disciplines, that we're doing that and in that process not doing some other things that we kind of would like to do. I think that's a struggle for us. And I don't think we do that intentionally. I I don't think that we wake up in the morning and say, let's see, today, how can I find, how can I get around every way possible to improve my spiritual life? How can I avoid anything that I can so that I don't grow any spiritually? And yet the busyness of life and the struggles of life and the difficulties of life and stuff that's important becomes focal in our lives instead of what's most important. And the activity and the busyness takes over. In his book, Worshiping with the Church Fathers, Christopher Hall says that, that it's kind of sobering when you look back and see that from the patristic viewpoint... The early church fathers defined spiritual sickness. It looks a lot like the way we live normal life. Hectic, frenetic, self-absorbed, self-deceptive. But it's not just about 
It's not just about making every effort to, to confirm our calling in a general way. There's specific things. And he says in verse, beginning in verse 5, he says, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. So it's not just about some arbitrary sense of you ought to be better. But it's developing the spirit, the, the, the fruit of the spirit, and, and, the, and the nature of Christ in us. It's not a coincidence that he starts with faith and ends with love. Faith is where we begin our journey and trusting in Christ and opening our hearts with Christ. And so often we just sit there. And we say, well, I've done that and that's good enough. We sort of have this mindset that we want to step inside the door, but we'd really like to stay as close to the door as we possibly can. And all the while God is calling us to to move closer to him, to experience fulfillment and joy and contentment and peace and blessing. But we're just kind of hugging over here because we're really enamored with the world more than we're enamored with Christ. And it's not a coincidence that he ends with love. And all of these things he talks about here are not necessarily in stages. They're all developing at the same time. But the apex, the epitome of of making every effort in our lives to look like Christ is always going to come out as love. It's what describes Jesus. Jesus says the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's about love. But the problem is we tend to think, and you hear people say, we just need to love. And that's better than hating. But human love by itself, as, as Joey quoted from Francis Chan, is, is always going to fall flat. It's not going to be enough. We're never going to be able to truly love the way we should unless that love is connected to faith. Unless it's Christ in us making us love, enabling us to love, giving us strength and power to love. And we're called to make every effort to look like that. To invest ourselves. To be passionate about being people who look like Christ. It doesn't just happen magically. Many of you are college students here, but you think about it, all of you. You think you, you enrolled, you applied to Houghton College, and you're accepted, and you show up the first weekend with all the new students... And you're so excited and you get there and you move into your room. And from that moment on, you never do anything else. You don't go to class. You don't buy any books. You don't read any books. You don't meet a professor. You don't do anything but just sit there in your room. At the end of the four years, if they let you stay four years, probably wouldn't. But if they do, at the end of the four years, you're going to be stunned to realize they're not going to give you a diploma. And you say, but wait a second, I was accepted, I came, I'm here. But that's not what it's about. That's just the entry point. Real education is what takes place after that. And you have to want it. You have to invest in it. You have to give yourself to it. And when we get to the end of that and they say, sorry, we don't have a diploma for you, most of us would blame the institution We ought to be looking in the mirror. And the calling of God in Christ about being people of the resurrection means that we invest ourselves in a way 
that realizes we are moving toward being the people God wants us to be and created us to be and to experience the fullness and the blessing of life with him. And it is hard. There are all kinds of obstacles to us. The stuff of this world gets in our way. Peter says in, in, in uh, verse 9 that, that one of the problems we have, probably the key problem, is that we're nearsighted. We're blind. We can't see what he's doing. I get that because I'm nearsighted. I understand completely what he's talking about. I take my glasses off. I can't see the big E on the chart at the eye doctor. I have no, I cannot distinguish any of your faces as I'm looking at you here. I couldn't, I had no, I have no idea who any of you are. I can't, I can't see that. I can't read the screen. I cannot read that right now on the screen. If I'm out, you know, obviously you can't drive a car like that. Uh, if I'm outside, I couldn't tell, hardly tell the difference between a deer and a, and a frog. You know, I, I can't see. But I can, I can see things up close. In fact, I often take my glasses off to read. It's just a little less strain on my eyes. A little less weight on my, on my ears. And I like to read that way, but the thing is, when I've got that book in front of my face, I'm oblivious to anything else going on in the room or outside. Because I'm just focused on what's right in front of me. And that's a lot of our problem. We're focused on what's right in front of us. And we can't see the bigger picture beyond us. We can't, we, we're so enamored with our busyness and, and the stuff of this world and accumulating things and, and getting power and, and filling up uh, our bank accounts or, or, or getting people to like us. All the things that are enamored with stuff here. Not unimportant things, but just less important. And we so often, when it talks about making every effort, it's about stuff here, not about stuff of God that's so much bigger. And what's interesting is that when we get connected to the bigger stuff of God and the bigger promises of God, then the stuff right around us begins to make sense. And our vision gets better. And we get healed. God knows how tough it is for us. He understands that we struggle. But he's always right there with us. In his grace and mercy. Helping us. Leading us. Guiding us. Watching over us. He's just asking for us. To make it a passion of our lives. To want to know him. And to be holy like him. And to make everything, do everything we can do to make ourselves ready to receive what he wants to give. A while back, someone sent me an article that um, was written by a professor of piano and ensemble at Syracuse University, Peter Karpoff. He titled the article, Renting Versus Owning. And the idea came to him when he went to National Conference on Piano Pedagogy. And the, the person presenting was, was saying that many times people come to, come to him and say, I used to play the piano. Sort of in a lamenting voice. And he says, I interpret that every time as, I'm a renter. I, I was just a renter about playing piano. 
And his, and his goal for these teachers who were listening to this, this presentation was that to go back and to create in their students a sense of ownership about playing the piano. He says, for those of us who love playing the piano, it, it gets under our skin and we become passionate about it. And we move from being renters to owners. He said, every person who, who really loves and invests themselves in learning to play the piano at some point in time moves from being a renter to an owner. And he tells about his 15-year-old daughter who went to a camp, a four-week camp, where every day they played the piano for three hours. He said, we were a little concerned about that because we could, had a hard time getting her to play 20 minutes a day. But while she was at that camp, during those four weeks, something changed in her. And when the camp was done, as a family, they went to the conference and, and uh, the, the author was making a presentation. And when the presentation was done, his family was there watching him. And after the presentation, people were talking with him and he was collecting his stuff. And, and the room had emptied out and he heard music coming from the adjoining room. And he, he sort of silently and surreptitiously made his way into the room and he saw a young woman young lady, girl, playing, leaned over the piano intensely, running through a Debussy piece. It was his daughter. She was all alone, no one else around. She was just practicing. And he said, from that point on, we have now had this constant negotiation about who gets to play the piano in our house. We're always fighting over whose turn it is because she wants to play when I want to play. And at some point in the process, he said, she started to become no longer a renter, but an owner. When I read that, I thought, what about us? When you think about the passions of your life, when you think about the yearnings of your soul, when you think about the places where you put your effort, your resources, your, your attitudes, your, your thoughts, your time, your energy, when you think about where you're investing your life related to the kingdom of God, are you a renter or an owner? God has great plans for us. God wants to bless our lives beyond what any of us could ever imagine. If we'll let him. If we will begin to embrace his calling with that passion of being owners. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need your help and your grace. And we ask that you would give us a want to, to be passionate about knowing you and following you and letting you change us. And Lord, help us today to to make a new step, a new commitment about our passions, about what's important to us, about confirming our calling 
in Christ, our resurrected Lord. Amen. Please stand and sing with us. Let no one caught in sin remain inside the Come away, come away, come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen 
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.